There are no shortages with Jesus. There are no shortages in the gospel itself. Jesus' grace for those who believe in him never even runs low. There's an abundance of provisions in the grace of Jesus, the bread of life. If we come to him, we'll never hunger again. He's the living water. If we drink of him, we'll never thirst again. There are no shortages of grace from Jesus for those who believe in him. I'm gonna share something with you. And you gotta know, this is, this is like sacrificial of me to name this thing. You got, this, theologically, it's important that you know, not all cookie butters are equal. Okay, Trader Joe's cookie butter is pretty good. All right, and smooth varieties of cookie butter are okay. But there's this one type of cookie butter that you will leave your wife for. I like when, when, this, when this jar is present in the Campbell house, like it does not survive long. Like tens of thousands of calories, pure sugar, it's like a jar of fat, and it's just gone. You could tell, you could look at me week to week and tell like, oh, yep, Pastor Jesse bought a jar of that cookie butter, because <laughs> I'll be wearing it that weekend. All right, and when I find it in stores, it's, it's, it's like one of the last two jars left because its distribution is limited, right? So that's, that's what I mean. Like when I say this name, I mean, this is sacrificial to me because I know what's gonna happen. I'm gonna find the one store in town that carries it. I'm gonna go to the store, it's gonna be empty. But like, Highlands! Are you ready? Are you sure? Okay. Biscoff crunchy cookie butter. <laughs> it's your problem now, too. We all share this burden together. <laughs> it is so ridiculously good. The bakery began as a mom and pop shop in 1932 in Limbeck, Belgium. They kind of made it big when they landed the contract with American Airlines when they give you those little cinnamon flavored coffee cookies when you fly with American. Some of you are like, I fly Alaska like a patriot. <laughs> but when you fly for that lesser airline, American, then you get Biscoff cookies. That's inside the cookie butter. It is ridiculously good. And because they sort of blew up, they're kind of beyond their capacity. And so the distribution is limited. And so it's scarce. And for that reason, this is a big deal for me. I've never even told, I've never, I've never told anybody else the name of this because it's so hard to find. <laughs> I, the reason I share, with, share that with you is one thing, so that it can help me lose weight. <laughs> but also, also to contrast it, the way that we think about the gospel and its power. Like there are no shortages with Jesus. You don't have to worry about that grace running out for you when you share it with somebody else. You don't have to think to yourself like, okay, if I tell somebody else about this, there may not be enough left for me when I come back again. The grace of Jesus, for those who believe in him, is limitless, never even runs low. He has zero problems with supply, meeting demand, zero issues with distribution. There are no shortages of grace 
with Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> now, we're coming up on, coming up on like kind of the last year of Jesus' ministry. Much of the gospels really focus on that last year. And I want you to, I want you to observe in the, the, the larger arc of Jesus' ministry as told through the gospels, the shifts that take place within it. Okay, in his, earlier in his ministry, he explains his teachings a little bit more. But you're gonna see a shift take place where he stops explaining it to the crowds as much and only explains it to his disciples. You're gonna see a shift take place where he goes from like healing people and then shushing them about that and then and like disappearing into the crowd. And he becomes a bit more brazen. I, I think it reaches its, its zenith in Matthew 21 when Jesus basically just tells the Pharisees, you've been the bad guys in my parables the last three years. It kind of reaches its peak then. We're not quite there yet, but you're also gonna see a shift take place in the crowds that follow Jesus. In this, in this chapter, the crowds are massive. These immense crowds follow Jesus. But then Jesus is gonna begin addressing those crowds with a form of skepticism that's interesting to me. Like he'll say things that would test the faith of the crowd. He'll call the crowd out on their collective phoniness test their faith, give them a difficult teaching and watch them disperse and then even question the people who remain. Are you gonna leave too? He would give this difficult teaching like what I believe was foreshadowing communion, telling a whole crowd of thousands, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the whole crowd's like, it just got weird. I'm out. <laughs> this is a difficult teaching, the text says. Who can accept it? And there's the disciples. All right. I call arm. <laughs> and, and this was revealed to them by the Spirit of God. Like, they're the, they're the ones that stick around. They're the only ones who remain to see the point of it all. They're the only ones who actually are there when Jesus takes the bread of the Seder meal and says, this is my body. And takes the cup and says, this is my blood. Only those who stuck around when it... You know, when it made no sense, got to see how it made sense. And that, that wasn't always the case with the disciples. You're also going to see a shift take place in the hearts of the disciples. Right? They, they, don't, they often don't get it. In fact, we're going to read a story about them being a part of this tremendous miracle, and they just don't get it. They're going to be put to work on something and not get the significance of it. It won't be until the book of Acts that you begin to see the light bulbs finally come on for some of these guys. They totally don't understand it. And I think that's interesting because didn't Jesus, didn't Jesus say that some people would be, you know, they'd see but not perceive and hear but not understand? Now, only, only by the Spirit of God do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying here. It sounds like this benign parable, right? It's not. There's more. It looks like a mere physiological miracle. It's not. There's more. I'll make the case for that. Let it not be said of us that we would read the parable of the sower and think to ourselves like, oh, it's a story about casting seed on different types of ground. Got it. And miss the point of it? That we would likewise see, oh, Jesus fed roughly 5,000 people. That's so nice of him. And miss the point. All right, don't miss this. Listen, have spiritual ears to hear what the miracles are saying to the churches. 
Mark chapter six, let's look at the first six verses and then we'll, we'll skip over what we studied as, as small groups and we'll zoom in on verse 30. Mark chapter six is on page 841 and the Bible's in the seats with you. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could no longer do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The villages, not so much right there in Nazareth. He marveled. Last week, we studied one of the, the, the other, the two instances in which Jesus marveled. But this has a negative connotation to it. He, he marveled at their lack of belief. And he only heals a few people. Did you see that? He only heals a few people on his way out the door. It's fascinating to me. He's in his own hometown. And they remember him as a little boy. They remember, they know his brothers. They know his sisters. They know Mary and Joseph. They know that he's, he's a carpenter. Where did he get these things? Where did these teachings come from? Not actually addressing the teachings themselves, but in an ad hominem attack, looking at Jesus himself. Like when I started off in, in ministry, I began speaking at my old home church. Okay, like there, there may have been some people who had a hard time taking me seriously. They're like, I remember you screaming at the top of your lungs and running full speed through the fellowship hall. And now you're giving me marital advice. Like, I changed your diapers in the nursery. <laughs> I have a hard time listening to you teach me from Song of Songs. Only in his hometown is a prophet without authority. Now there's something else here that I, I thought was interesting. This has no theological significance. I just think it's funny. Jesus had a brother named Joseph. Can you imagine? That is, that is the worst name ever to have. When your half-brother is Jesus. Can you imagine like everybody just being excited to meet him and then having to let them down. No, 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 no. I'm Joseph. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Look at verse 30. Let's read one verse and then talk about it real quick. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. All right, for context, Jesus send, sends his disciples out. So they temporarily become apostles. Anytime you see those three letters, A-P-O, you're seeing an English transliteration of a Greek preposition. The way that prepositions work in the Greek language is you have like these three or four letter things, these prefixes that you'll stick on the beginnings of words. And that apo, the apo preposition means out of, away from. So the apostles are the ones who are sent out. Apostles, apo. This is also the etymology of, of the term apocrypha, which we use to describe the, the book's that we do not include in the Protestant Bible. Now your, your Catholic friends, or some of you who, who grew up Catholic, would probably bristle at that term, apocrypha, because it's pejorative in nature. It's that we cast those texts out. No, they'll give them more esteem and call them the deuterocanonical texts. 
So anytime you see apo as in apocrypha or apostle, you're seeing something that has been sent out. This comes from the Greek preposition, out of. So the apostles are sent out. Then they come back and report to Jesus. Jesus is getting his disciples ready to change the world. This was, this was an early dry run of their ministry. The same thing that would forever change history. Okay, what year is it? Right, why is it the year that it is? Why is it ever the year that it is? Always because we measure time itself now based on its proximity to the birth of Jesus. I know that in, in uh, secular academia, we tried to change you know, BC before Christ to BCE before the Christian era. Christ is still there. His name is even still in the term, and we all know what we're measuring around, by the way. It's always the year that it is because it has been that many years minus one. The Gregorian calendar had no year zero. It just began with one. We said, that was so cataclysmic. Let's just measure time from that forevermore. It is always the year that it is because it's been that many years minus one since the birth of Jesus. And these disciples, these ragtag disciples, fishermen, tax collector, a kooky physician, like these would be the ones who would carry the bread of life forward. They would be the ones who carry the gospel message forward and break history in half forevermore. What we just saw was a dry run. You're going to see Jesus do less and less of the ministry himself and more and more equipping of the disciples to do the ministry. He even, he even hinted at his very first miracle. When he turned the water to wine, Jesus didn't touch the water. Read the text. He just told people what to do. And then it became wine. Jesus doesn't feed the 5,000 himself. Watch in the text and see who does the work of ministry and consider what Jesus may be impressing upon your heart through this miracle. There's way more at play here than merely bread. So that's what, that's what it means when the apostles return to Jesus. They've been sent out. They've been sent out in pairs, by the way. That's deliberate. Did you know that it's not by Jesus' design that you would lead the Christian life all alone? He sent his disciples out in twos. You'd never do this alone. You wouldn't be by yourself. Stop failing at the Christian life alone and start helping other people and being helped by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Jesse, where am I gonna find somebody that I could do the Christian life with? Oh, I don't know. I know of about 1,999 other people at Highlands Community Church who are walking through the Christian life with you right now. So today, be awkward, risk rejection, and resolve not to leave this place without a new friend. Because the Christian walk wasn't meant for you to walk it alone. Now keep in mind, if he sends out the 12 disciples, they become 12 apostles temporarily. You know what that means, right? It means that somebody coupled up with Judas. <laughs> Can you imagine that letter home? <laughs> Dear mom, I think my roommate is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Not everybody you do ministry with is gonna be perfect, but the, the Lord whom you serve is. So, verse 30, the apostles return to Jesus, and then immediately Jesus tells them to rest. Look at verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I'm gonna stop right there because I think that some of you just got convicted by the words of Jesus. Neglecting rest, refusing Sabbath. No, rest is not using a substance to numb your brain. It's not what rest is. Rest is not turning on Netflix and watching that Formula One series, which is so stinking cool, by the way. I've never given a rip about Formula One in my life until now. It is not just mind-numbing disconnection. It's not something you have to recover from later. It is restorative. It is rest. Jesus himself rests. He breaks away from the crowd to rest twice in this chapter. Jesus did it. So should we. I spoke with our staff about this this past week. I spoke with my lead team about this very thing. And I want to share with you the same, same kind of challenge, same thought. Would you endeavor to use all of your vacation days every year? And just consider how that might change the trajectory of the health of your family, condition of your marriage, relationship with your kids. And it's so simple. That's the most American thing I've ever said. I challenge you to use your vacation days. Hey, look at us. When we go to Europe as tourists, the Europeans look at us like, Americans are so ambitious. They go to the beach and they build something. <laughs> use all of your vacation days. Use all of your vacation days. Make that a goal. All right? Use all of your vacation days. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them and they ran out there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. See what Jesus is doing? See the significance of that? You give them something to eat. And he said to them, they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It's a rhetorical question. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, amen, he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. 
And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, it's way late in the night, coming up in the morning, at the fourth watch of, uh, at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They thought it was an apparition, an illusion. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately, amen, he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Don't miss this next verse. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately, amen, recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds. And wherever they heard he was, to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he came in villages, cities, and, uh, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they, they, they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. So look at the way this chapter ends versus the way this chapter began. Mass healings. Everybody just reaching out and touching Jesus and being healed. But do you remember how it began in his hometown of Nazareth? Where he didn't perform any miracles there because they didn't believe. He healed only a few sick people. And now the chapter ends, it, it began, in, began in Nazareth. It ends in Genesaret with just mass numbers of healings. What's the difference between Genesaret and Nazareth? It's fascinating, right? I mean, they didn't, they, in Nazareth, they just didn't believe in Jesus. And so Jesus didn't do, many, didn't do many, many miracles there. But they believed in Jesus in Genesaret. And so there's mass numbers of people who were healed there. It's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me, especially in our modern context, because some of you would say, yeah, I'll believe in Jesus if he does what, I t- does what I say first. It's not how it works, friend, not biblically. I'll believe in Jesus as long as he's obedient to me. <laughs> well, then he's not Lord, you are. <laughs> You don't set the terms here for Jesus, you understand? He doesn't have to abide by the code of conduct that you give him, all right? Look, at, look, look, look back at this text, piece by piece with me. When, when we see Jesus have his disciples return to him in verse 30, he has them rest in verse 31 and 32, like they're just rock stars that get recognized everywhere that they go. And then they, they come ashore and the crowd is all in this desolate place. You see that in verse 35? It may be difficult to understand at first. In verse 35, the disciples say, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. What do they mean by desolate? Well, there are, apparently there are no markets nearby. There are no restaurants within reach. It's just nothing but wilderness around them. This is deliberate on Jesus's part. You understand the feeding of the 5,000 would be way less impressive if there were a Safeway grocery store right at the corner be way less impressive, way less miraculous if there was a market right next to them. And so his disciples sort of point out the fact that, look, it's a, this is a desolate place. Everyone's getting hungry. You've been teaching them a while. Can we just sort of break for a minute there? Because we're like a half a day's walk from Ivor's Fish Market. So they, they suggested that Jesus wrap things up, but Jesus had set the stage so that he alone would get the glory for what came next. Can anybody relate to that point in the text right now? Uh, It it looks desolate, and the only way I'm getting through this season of my life is if Jesus provides. Yeah, that's the point. 
The, the desolation of the setting of the miracle is what made the miracle miraculous, is what made Jesus get all of the credit for what followed. He set the stage so that he alone would get the credit for it. And then their question in verse 37, should we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to him? Just for context, one denarius was like a day's wage. So 200 denarii, the plural of denarius, would be like 200 days wages, okay, tens of thousands of dollars. That's about how much it would cost just to feed this whole crowd some bread. So just let that, let that place in perspective the size of this huge crowd. The end of the text says there were about 5,000, but it says 5,000 men. Some of this was because of just a cultural preference for men over women, all in all, in terms of priority, but also it was just efficient. It's just a more efficient way to get, a, to get an estimate on the size of a crowd. Okay, all 20,000 of you, sit still. All right, you moved. Right? This count only the dudes. There are 5,000 of them. So let's say that what percentage of that 5,000 had their wives with them? What percentage of those had their kids with them? How many kids did they have per family? You can see how this number very quickly could grow from 5,000 to 20,000 in size. Just for perspective, how, how colossal this crowd is. Now, in verse 38, I want to look at Jesus' reasoning. I want, to, I want to point out the difference between the disciples' perspective and Jesus' perspective. In verse 38, the disciples are pointing out to Jesus everything that they lack. They're pointing to the dearth of resources. They're pointing to the need and the colossal odds against them. But what does Jesus ask? What do you have? What do you actually have? That's what Jesus asked. His emphasis was on what they had, not on what they lacked. Jesus was not intimidated by what they lacked. He asked them what they have, and he used it so that he got the glory for it. All right, the whole inadequacy of their own resources is part of the point. Do you see this at work in Old Testament narratives? Part of the whole reason that David was God's anointed was because he was the runt. Part of the reason that Moses was chosen to lead Israel was because he could barely walk or speak. So that God gets the glory, not us. That's the point. Jesus pointed to what they had and not what they lacked. This is the juncture. This is the fork in the road whereupon you will either get this story or not. Is this story about just bread and fish or is there something more? John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is not merely bread. This is symbolic of Jesus himself and the gospel itself. Do you remember in, uh, when Jesus called some of these disciples? Some of them were fishing. In Matthew 4, 19 and Mark 1, 17, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Do you think it's significant that these disciples are, are, are symbolically carrying out fish to the people and bread to the people? I believe it's a picture of them sharing the gospel with the crowd. I believe it's a dress rehearsal for what would follow after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Because historically, that's what happened. They carried it to thousands. And the thousands carried it to thousands. And we're on the opposite side of the planet right now from where these events took place talking about it. 2,000 years later. This whole miracle is a picture of the explosion of the gospel after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. It's not just bread. It's not just fish. 
Do not merely let your mind be blown by this text. If all, the, all you walk away with is a mind that's blown by a miracle, you've woefully underestimated the text. It is not merely a story about miraculous provision. It is a commissioning. It puts us to work. It demonstrates for us what we are to do. Now, with whom will you identify in the text? The crowd who feasts on the gospel or the disciples who carry the bread and fish to the people? This is all intentional. Verse 39, it's rare for Mark to be the detail-oriented gospel writer, but he points out something that the other gospel writers don't include. This is the one miracle that's present in all four gospels. And Mark, usually our ever-to-the-point succinct writer, points out the fact that the grass is green. This miracle takes place at springtime. Can anybody relate to that context? Washington is the most beautiful state in the U.S. I said it. (laughs) So they sit down on the green grass. And I know that verse 40, I know that the opening words of verse 40 just sound like this pointless little logistical detail. So they sat down, like I'm ready to shout hallelujah. Because I believe that's the most important part of the whole text. All right, re- replay it in your head. Picture it like it, thousands of people, five loaves and two fish, and then Jesus says, okay, sit down. <laughs> and so they sit. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Like it's woefully inadequate. That's obviously not gonna feed everybody. I believe they sat down expecting Jesus to do something awesome. <laughs> I, that's why I think this is the most important line of the whole story. I don't understand what you're gonna do, Jesus. I'm just gonna go along with it. You understand? Like Jesus, you didn't even answer my question but I'm going to sit down. <laughs> Do you see that? How many of you likewise are in this place where like, I don't, I don't understand this part of the Bible. I don't really get it. But I'm just going to sit. I'm going to know that you're good. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're going to do something that I can't see coming yet. Jesus, I have a lot of questions and you haven't answered them, but I'm going to obey you. Do you see that? Verse 40 is more than a logistical detail. It's this the group of thousands of people just sitting expectantly because it made no sense to sit unless you believe that Jesus was about to do something awesome. Now look at verse 41. Look at it closely and tell me, who does the work of ministry in this miracle? Who distributes the food according to verse 41? The disciples. It's not Jesus who actually, it's not Jesus who actually goes and himself feeds every single person. He gives it to his disciples and his disciples distribute it. So Jesus is working the miracle and the disciples are stewards of it. Are you seeing a parallel to anything here? Can you as a New Testament Christian who's been given the great commission by Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations. Can anybody relate to what's happening in the miracle right now? You picture the disciples taking the bread of life from the bread of life and giving it to the people and finding that it is limitless in its capacity and that everybody who feasts on the bread of life is never hungry again. And there's an overabundance after everything is left over. This is not about bread and fish. This is about the provision of Jesus for all who call upon his name because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And these disciples, they just keep carrying it from Jesus to the people and from Jesus to the people. And there's plenty for everybody. This is more than a meal. This is a picture of what we ought to do. Jesus equips his disciples. His disciples are the ones who distribute it out to the people. And then did you see in verse 42? 
All right, how many disciples are there? How many baskets are left over, according to verse 42? A basket per disciple. Even after feeding thousands of people, there is a basket per distributor left over. There is more than enough grace for you. It's not like Biscoff crunchy cookie butter, okay? You're not gonna have to worry about this running out. You can share it and share it and share it and share it and there's still a feast of grace for you too. Do you understand? He's not gonna run short. There's no shortages of grace from Jesus. So you share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. It will never run dry. This is a picture of us sharing the gospel, coming from the bread of life to the people who are hungry. This number 12, do you think it's deliberate? Nah, it's arbitrary. Biblically, the number 12, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 princes from Ishmael, 12 wells of water at Elim, 12 loaves of bread in the tabernacle, 12 oxen offered at the dedication of the tabernacle, 12 silver platters, 12 silver bowls, 12 golden pans, 12 young bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs in their first year, 12 kids of goats, all brought over the course of 12 days in number 778. 12 rods from the 12 tribes, the one that blossomed indicated God's chosen. That was Aaron's. 12 spies sent into the promised land. 12 stones from the Jordan River to make the altar. 12 governors appointed by Solomon over all of Israel. 12 oxen statues under the priestly water basin. 12 pieces of Ahijah's garment. 12 stones for Elisha's altar. 12 yoke of oxen with Elisha. 12 years for Nehemiah's tenure. 12 months for Nebuchadnezzar's coming judgment from the Lord. 12 disciples of Jesus. 12 years of affliction for the woman from last week's text. 12 years of life before the resurrection of Jairus daughter, 12 baskets left over for the distributors in this text, 12 legions of angels standing by to deliver Jesus during the crucifixion, 12 men anointed by Paul in Acts 19, 12 gates on the new city, the new Jerusalem, 12 angels at those gates, 12 foundations under the wall surrounding the heavenly city, and 12 fruits on the tree of life described in Revelation 22 too. So no, the number 12 is completely arbitrary. This is a story about fish and nachos. Everything about this text is deliberate. Everything is by God's design. This is more than a miracle. It is a message and a challenge that we would be like the disciples and distribute this. You cannot exhaust the provisions of God. And then I, the reason that I included the walking on water with the feeding of the 5,000 is because the two are inextricably linked. Did you see, did you see how the disciples didn't understand the loaves from the feeding of the 5,000? Look at verse 52. They didn't understand about the loaves. That's why they were afraid. They didn't get it. The crowd, likewise, by the way, didn't get it. According to John 6, this account of the same miracle, verses 14 and 15, John 6, they wanted to make Jesus king after this. Great, a king who makes free bread. Woohoo! And it's not the point at all. It's not the purpose of this. Great, a bread maker. <laughs> that's, not, that's not who Jesus is. He had no interest in being merely their king. He is the king of kings. He had more on his heart than merely this physical miracle. It was you in this room right now reading the word of God and seeing yourself in it, seeing how you likewise have been commissioned by Jesus to give others the bread of life. And there is sufficient grace for everyone to whom you would bring the gospel and then it's, it's striking to me that the disciples would fail to recognize Jesus, but the crowd immediately would recognize Jesus. They didn't quite get it at first. They didn't quite get it. 
Did you see also the, the huge scope of everything that Jesus did before proclaiming to his disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid? In verse, in verse 46, look at it, he's on the mountain. In verse 47, he's on the land. In verse 48, he's on the sea. And when we break down the phrase, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, and when we translate it, without regard for English syntax, directly from the Greek, what Jesus actually says, standing on the water while his disciples are being battered by the wind after having coming down from the mountain and standing on the land, he says the same words that God spoke from the fire of the burning bush, I am. Ego eimi, I am, is what Jesus actually says in the Greek. It's what God said from the burning bush, from the fire, Jesus comes down from the mountain, his disciples are in the wind, and he's standing on the water. He is Lord over all of these elements. There's not a thing in all of creation that was made apart from Jesus. So he is Lord, he is King. He is the Lord over all of these things, and he is the one who says, I am. Do not be afraid, take heart. I believe the disciples ought to have taken their cue from that moment. Jesus' grace was so abundant it's so abundant that even the man that we met in Mark chapter two, the paralyzed man whose friends lowered him on a mat down in front of Jesus. Did you see in the last verses of this chapter how even that, that miracle gets reenacted multiple times over? Like that healing of the paralyzed man in Mark two was a prototype for a miracle that Jesus would repeat multiple times over in verses 55 and 56 of this chapter. Did you see also people reaching out and touching the fringe of Jesus's garment in verses 55 and 56? It's the same miracle that we studied last week. That was just the, that was the template for a miracle that we repeated multiple times over. There was that, that power that flowed from Jesus in Mark chapter five apparently is abundant and unending and inexhaustible because Jesus healed countless people all over Genesaret. So look at the abundant, never ending, inexhaustible grace of Jesus Christ and consider the imaginary 13th disciple who refused to distribute the food. Picture it. The 12 disciples are doing what they do, even Judas, begrudgingly. <laughs> How much money could we make off this? <laughs> and, and they're distributing the food, but imagine being one of the disciples who takes the bread and takes the fish and says, thanks, Jesus, and then plop, <laughs> just sits and feasts and doesn't share it with anybody else, doesn't actually do what it was intended to be used for, just sits. Let's call that disciple Greedy Grayson, Take the bread from Jesus, take the fish, and just sit. Is that what we're doing right now? Is that what we're doing with the gospel of Jesus Christ? With the bread of life? Not sharing it, not distributing it as we we're intended to, but just feasting on it for ourselves? Do not be like greedy Grayson, my friends. The intent of being issued the bread of life like we'll talk about this Good Friday when we take communion, is to share that good news with others. It's to share the bread of life with other people. Let's do some basic math real quick from Census Bureau data, and then I want you to do some individual personal math with the numbers that I give you. And as of July, two, uh, July 1st, 2017, the Census Bureau data indicates that the population of Renton was 101,379. The total population of Kent was 128,458. When comparing the Census Bureau data from 2010 to 2017, it indicates a 1.19% per year growth rate in 
Kent, and a 1.47 per year growth rate within Renton. So applying those numbers, those would put the, the current population of Renton at roughly 104,358.5. Don't ask me what a 0.5 person looks like. And the current population of Kent at 133,339.4. Now when you take the combined populations of Renton and Kent, and you apply the same basic math that was used here at the feeding of the 5,000, wherein the crowd broke up into groups of 50s, because that's what you do in Jewish festivals. As a Jewish feast would be administered, that's what you do. You break up into groups of 100s and 50s, like the crowd did in this text. Let's assume they break up into groups of 50s to make it more difficult. And let's apply that math to a church of 2,000, like Highlands Community Church. Each of the disciples distributing food to a crowd of 20,000 would have to bring the bread to 33.3 repeating groups in order to feed all 20,000, if the crowd were 20,000. If the crowd really were only 5,000, that's 8.3 repeating groups they had to bring bread and fish to. With a church of 2,000 to reach a total population of Renton and Kent, do you know how many groups of 50 each of us needs to bring the gospel to? One. Eight times easier than the easiest scenario for the Pharisees. If a church of 2,000 each brings the gospel to 50 people, the entire population of Renton and Kent has been reached. So now here's where you do glorious holy math to the glory of God in your heart. Anointed arithmetic, if you will. Over what timeline might you bring the gospel to 50 people? Could you share the gospel with, with 50 people in the course of a year? Yeah, and have two weeks off. Over what timeline might you share the gospel with 50 people? Remember the parable of the sower. What did we learn in Mark 4? All right, you don't determine the type of soil. Your job is not to, to change the soil. We say the Holy Spirit changes the soil. The Holy Spirit tills the soil. The Holy Spirit does that. What is your job? It's to cast the seed. It's to share the gospel. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 was not that Jesus fed people. It was that he put his disciples to work giving the bread of life that is over and abundant and never ending to the people who needed it, the people who were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Does that sound like the culture of Seattle right now? Can you think of a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit of God that studies the word of God book by book, where people are gifted by the Holy Spirit of God and know the gospel of Jesus Christ and can go out and share that with them over and abundantly and it never runs dry and it never runs out? I can. So let the Holy Spirit of God work upon your heart. If you're a Christian, you're being called to make disciples of Jesus Christ, would you do some basic math? Let's apply the basic arithmetic that Jesus used here in dispatching his disciples to feed thousands. And let's likewise step into the ministry we've inherited as disciples of Jesus ourselves and carry the bread of life to those who need it. In our context, that means that if each of us reaches 50 people, we've reached our entire community. Now, you're my skeptical friend. And you came here to scope this thing out. You came here for the good coffee. I hope that you've seen a picture of Jesus in this text. He is walking on the water because he's Lord over it. He's able to distribute the bread of life because he is the creator. He's able to stand on the mountain because it's his. He's able to speak through the wind because he created it. He's able to say, I am, just like God did from the fire, because he is. 
He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. And his gracious provisions for you will never run dry. Would you, drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of God, right here and now, pray a prayer with me out to God. Let's pray the word of God out to God. Let's pray John 3, 16 to God. For God so loved the world and that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. Let's pray Romans 3, 23 that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's pray Romans 6, 23, that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray John 14, 6, where Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So as that same King of kings and Lord of lords draws upon your heart, would you stand with us as we pray? If God's drawing upon your heart to give your life to him, would you pray with me now? God, I believe that your word is true. I believe that you fed the 5,000 the bread of life, and I believe you're feeding it to me now. I feast upon the grace. I believe that you're Lord. I believe that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I believe, God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of God right now, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, say Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Oh God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.